Welcome to What's the Deal, our investment banking podcast on Making Sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of What's the Deal, we'll explore the trends that are driving deal-making and transforming industries today. Welcome to this edition of J.P. Morgan's What's the Deal podcast. I am Louise Bennett, the head of J.P. Morgan's board advisory team in EMEA and the host of today's podcast. I'm joined today by Karen Ward, J.P. Morgan's chief market strategist for asset and wealth management for EMEA. Karen was previously the chair of the UK's Council of Economic Advisors and currently serves on the UK Chancellor's Economic Advisory Council. Thank you so much for joining us, Karen, and welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today, we will be discussing a topic of increasing focus, at least on this side of the Atlantic, which is the relative economic performance or underperformance of Europe in regards to the United States. We will also be discussing the impact of geopolitics, structural impediments to economic growth, inflation, and other issues facing the region. So Karen, before the pandemic, Europe had had a difficult decade. Between 2010 and 2019, we saw that the US grew at 2.4%, but the Eurozone managed just one4 and the region's asset performance was similarly underwhelming. In your opinion, what are the reasons for this underperformance? Yes, absolutely. I think it's fair to say that Europe had a difficult decade. I'd argue that it's largely that Europe felt the aftermath of the global financial crisis both more acutely and for a much longer period. And there's a few reasons for that. One is that Europe as a region is much more heavily dependent on its banking sector, doesn't use capital markets in quite the way the US does. So following the financial crisis, when the commercial banks were recoiling, the effect of that on the private sector lasted many years and was particularly acute. But then, of course, in Europe, we rolled from the financial crisis a couple of years later into the sovereign crisis. So the bailout, the support for the financial system impacted public sector debt, government sector debt concerns emerged, and there were concerns about the region breaking up, in fact. And therefore, Many of the sovereigns in the region, particularly in the south, were forced to embark on some pretty extraordinary austerity programs in order to reconvince the bond markets to lend to them. And I really wouldn't underestimate the role that that austerity played in weak growth, low inflation, because the public sector accounts for something between 20 and 25% of employment in many of these economies. And so the public sector on a pay freeze for 10 years, employment contracting, governments not investing in the economy, I think that was a pretty crucial part of the story. So in essence, we just had the financial crisis took many more years to heal. And we also can see that the region has been dealing with a war on its doorstep after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How is this affecting the region economically? And looking further ahead, we've seen the tragic events of this weekend. How will that impact the region more broadly? Well, the first channel of impact is via the energy markets. I mean, Europe was incredibly dependent on Russia for its energy. 40% of its gas came from Russia direct via pipelines. So the invasion of Russia and Ukraine and that severing of relationships with Russia 
was dramatic and, and extreme. So energy prices rose significantly. There were concerns that actually Europe would literally run out of gas. At one point, the expectation was that in this year, Germany would contract by 5%. So running out of gas, that was the big concern. Now, in fact, what's happened is that Europe has coped, I would say, remarkably well a response by governments to put together new gas storage tanks. Liquefied natural gas was bought in largely from America to replace that Russian pipeline gas. And actually, therefore, we got through the last winter much better than I think most analysts would have expected. There was no absolute rationing. We're obviously heading back into winter now, and those concerns about how we will cope without Russian energy supply are very much still there. But... There's been a degree of luck in that the weather has been mild, both through the course of last winter and over the course of the summer. Those gas storage tankers are full. And therefore, assuming the winter isn't particularly cold, which of course, forecasting the weather is even harder than forecasting economies, mm -hmm. then Europe looks well placed. Now, that being said, that means we will not run out of gas. But the structural problem is that we are living with higher gas prices than we had in the past. So if we go back to pre-Russia's invasion of Ukraine, both the US and Europe had similar gas prices. They're up about two thirds in the US. They're up seven times in Europe. So our companies are just coping with this materially higher cost. The one silver lining is that the region has been really galvanized to come together in the face of Russian aggression. And some programs have emerged at the multilateral, at the institutional level to cope. And particularly those are things like the EU Recovery Fund. And this is promoting many of those green projects, those infrastructure projects. And these build on many of the pandemic-related projects in order at the government level to support activity. And this is actually really quite important, Louise, because, you know, I said to you that one of the problems we had last decade was investors really questioning whether the euro as a construct could survive because there wasn't this sort of pact at the government level, a fiscal pact. But almost the troubles, the trauma that we have been through in the last couple of years have forced policymakers to come together almost begin that creation of a fiscal union. So I would say at the institutional, at the political level, in some ways the Eurozone is stronger than it has been, certainly when we look back at how we were in the sovereign crisis. So then perhaps let's look at the one country outside of the Eurozone, the UK, also now outside of the EU. Do you think that the UK has been a particular outlier in Europe in terms of growth or inflation? Many of the themes, I would say, are the same. We have, like the continent, although much of our gas is piped from Norway, we've still had to compete in global markets. So we have had this energy shock, this headline inflation shock, which has really damaged both household and business spending. And that's sort of working its way through the system like it is on much of the continent. But as you say, the UK is also dealing with its Brexit situation. And I would say where the UK perhaps stands out slightly in terms of the current concerns about weak growth and elevated inflation is that our labour market does seem to be struggling to recover from both the pandemic and our Brexit relationship because 
our participation, the number of people here and looking for work does seem to be structurally damaged. And that is then promoting wage growth, Although wage growth sounds like a good thing, obviously, when we're worried about inflation, it's not such a good thing. So the Bank of England, I think, are treading a, a very fine line. They have a difficult balancing act to play in terms of not slowing the economy too much when the economy is already struggling in the face of high energy prices, but also being cognizant of this deep-rooted underlying inflationary pressure that's coming from some real structural problems in the labour market. So then let me ask you on that point, Karen, should interest rates have been hiked sooner? I think what all the central banks failed to see, and I would put the Fed in this bucket as well, was that a cost shock would actually then become more embedded in the economy because the labour markets were so strong. We've been through a decade where workers never really asked for more pay. And they became a bit complacent, I think, about our ability domestically to generate inflation. Whereas actually what happened is workers were hit with a 10% rise in their cost of living and they asked their boss for more money. And therefore the sort of what economists call second round effects of inflation, they were underestimated. I would say that is true here in Europe. It is also true in the US. And for that reason, that sort of degree of complacency about the second round effects Yes, the liftoff from zero interest rates, the exit of quantitative easing, all of that could have been earlier. They've obviously caught up significantly now. And I do think we're getting to the point where the central banks have probably done enough. We will see inflation moderate here in Europe and sort of catch up with the downtrend that we've already seen in inflation in the US. Because I think it's worth remembering that here in Europe, the energy base effects, they are coming through much later. So the US has had a beneficial tailwind for inflation that we will get in the coming months here in Europe. So on the topic of the United States, you've been a bit sceptical about what you've described as the Goldilocks narrative when it comes to the US economy. Explain what you mean by that and also how likely you think it is that Europe, the US and the UK will avoid a recession going forward. The market narrative just swung so incredibly quickly. This time last year, the market narrative was, oh, it's the 1970s again. We're going to need really deep recessions in the US and in Europe in order to get rid of inflation. And then by February, that narrative had switched towards, oh, inflation's going to go away all of its own accord. We don't need any weakness in activity. The central banks are going to be able to bring interest rates down to support growth. So what I mean by a scepticism about the Goldilocks narrative is this idea that growth will remain resilient even in the face of 500 basis points of interest rate hikes, and that resilience will not result in lingering inflation. So usually, if we look back over multiple decades, when the central banks have slammed on the brakes... The result has been a recession. That recession is what gets rid of the inflationary pressure. That's the normal cycle. And I just think that's still the world we're in. They have raised rates. Growth will slow. I still think a recession is more likely than not in the US. I think we're further through it, actually, I would say, in Europe. Our activity is weaker than in the US. Our consumer hasn't stayed as strong as happened in the US. And therefore, I'm skeptical on this idea that 
everything will soft land and we are at the beginning of a cycle and all will be well. I think we should still brace ourselves for some weakness ahead. And you've also expressed concerns about the increase in oil prices with OPEC's uh, recent actions. Is this still a concern for you going forward? And what do you think the likely impact of that is? Yes, absolutely. There's the direct channel by which higher oil prices eat into consumer spending power and how that slows activity. But I also think it's just a strategic challenge for the central banks. They've all had inflation above their 2% targets for well over two years now. And it's fine for them to say, look, okay, inflation's above target, but it's coming down. It's under control. But of course, rising oil prices sends headline inflation back up again. We've already seen it start to pick back up again in the US. And I think for the central banks, that's just a much harder narrative for them to claim victory when actually, even if core inflation is suffering, headline inflation is picking back up. So I think rising oil prices, any rising costs just adds another ripple to the inflation problem that we are still working through and certainly increases risks, as I say, that actually it's not such a soft landing. And in terms of the structural impediments to economic growth, I think there are some quite big distinctions between Europe and the US, as you touched on in the first response. Can you elaborate a little bit about more on what those are and how we are likely to see them addressed or not, as the case may be? Yes, partly they are the deep-rooted building blocks of how our economies grow, which is that our economy grows either by having more people or those people are more productive. And Europe's demographics aren't as strong as the US. The US still has a marginally increasing working population. Europe's population is on aggregate going to decline over the next 20 or so years in the region of 10 to 15% on current forecasts. So we would have to be even more productive in order to keep up. Now that could happen, but I think the energy transition will be, at least in the short term, relatively difficult. That's another impairment to structural growth. And I think the other thing that Europe is going to need to manage is its geographic orientation. It had done a very good job of reorientating its activity towards China as a growth engine. But China's emergence from the pandemic is not as strong as anyone anticipated. And so much of that export demand heading towards China just doesn't look like it's going to be coming back as strongly. So I think It's partly our capacity to grow, but also where our end consumer is, where our end demand is. But I don't think we should be too pessimistic because, as I say, I do think one of the big problems in Europe, which was really exposed in the sovereign crisis, was this idea that we had created a monetary union without a fiscal union. I think what's happened in the last couple of years in the face of this adversity from the pandemic and from Russia and wars on our doorstep, is that actually the institutional architecture of the Eurozone has really improved. And therefore, as the recovery fund gets spent, that will start to support growth in the region. So I think there are structural concerns that we've known about for a very long time. But actually, incrementally, to me, we're just putting together our long-term capital market assumptions, which are our projections for the next 10 to 15 years. And I have actually been revising up my forecasts for the Eurozone and for the UK, just because I think actually some of those foundations are better than they were a few years ago. 
On that optimistic note, we will end today's podcast. Thank you very much to all of our listeners. Thanks for listening to What's the Deal? If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. To stay ahead of the curve, sign up for J.P. Morgan's In Context newsletter, packed full of market views and expert insights delivered straight to you. To subscribe, just visit jpmorgan.com forward slash in hyphen context. This material was prepared by the Investment Banking Group of J.P. Morgan Securities, LLC, and not the firm's research department. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase, sale, or tender of any financial instrument.